when you look at viruses in the literature, it's estimated between somewhere 10, 15, and 20% of all cancers are caused by viruses. That is a, that's an incredible number when you think about it. And estimates are that up to 25% of all cancers are caused by infectious diseases as a whole. This is what the data is pointing to as it relates to long COVID, other viruses, other pathogens, the immune dysfunction, and cancer. And the concern here, does this then lead to cancer being the next global pandemic? Well, if you just look at the data, it clearly points to the likelihood that it does. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Welcome back to another podcast. Dr. Nathan Goodyear here, practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear. And what we're going to talk about today, controversial, shouldn't be, but it is. Is there a connection between long COVID, viruses, and cancer? Now, I think just being controversial for the sake of controversy is never the right approach. That's just attention-seeking. But when the information, here we're talking about the data, we're talking about the science, when it becomes controversial for the purpose of seeking out truth, we must make sure that we don't shy away from a controversial topic. And this exactly is such a case. So we're not going to shy away from the controversy here. We want to focus on the evidence. And unfortunately, that is controversial. But let's dive in. So here we go. Wanted to present first the objectives of this of this podcast, and this may be a, a little bit of a lengthy one, so I apologize, but there's a lot of evidence here to weed through. So th the objectives here is first, what is long COVID? Second, what are the causes of long COVID? Third, what is turbo cancer? I love that word, turbo cancer. It's, it's really, you know, generating a lot of... Um, news out there on the on the internet hasn't made it to mainstream yet fourth what is the connection between long covid and cancer so that's going to be really the big bulk of it and then the fifth is is SARS-CoV-2 the virus that causes covid-19 and the pandemic of covid-19 is it an oncovirus a virus that causes cancer so we're going to dive into this I want to start off with a quote from George Orwell in 1941. He said, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and your ears. It was their final, most essential command. The component of that quote that I think so is, that's so important here is reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. So no matter what you see, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter what you're hearing, we're asked today to reject those senses. Reject the, reject the sense of what you read. Reject the sense of what you see in people with cancer and COVID or long COVID. And we're asked to eliminate that from our minds and then just trust those that are arbiters of the science. Well, 
let's actually look at what the science shows to determine what we should believe or not believe. So this would seem on its face to be a strange connection, long COVID, viruses, and cancer. Yet, I'm going to present evidence today that really shows that this improbable seems to be the probable, the probable, and in fact, it's proving to be the possible. More and more, long COVID viruses and cancer are proving to be a very likely connection that we need to be concerned about now and in the near future. And you know, this debate over the last three years has been about science versus the science. There were those that said the science should be trusted and not question when in fact science is simply just questions and answers, Q and A's. Without curiosity, there, there really is no science because science is born out of curiosity. And it's that, it's that question that generates the answer that leads to the data that then you know, pushes us forward in new discoveries. Simply saying, trust the science, and because it's the science, you should not you know, question it. That's not science at all. I would actually say that's propaganda. Now, there's an interesting word, and you know how I love words. Etymology is a study of the origin of words. Words jump out of history, and they tap you on the shoulder and provide the relevance from history to modern day. I have a, I have a daughter who studied medieval history in Scotland, and she reminds me all the time the connection from history to modern day. So propaganda is a word really, interestingly enough, was just narrative. It had no uh, pejorative or negative leaning connotation at all. It was just simply providing information. It's only been since World War II that that negative connotation and the fact that it became negative in its meaning becoming a process of deliberate intention to mislead. So historically, it was not to mislead, but it's only been in modern times, born out of war, born out of the discovery that by misleading intentionally people via an ideological perspective, you could influence mass opinion and thus action. Interesting word. Now, how does that tie in? Because it's going to tie in to what is the science versus what is the science. So let's talk about what is long COVID. Let's define that first. And this is, this is new, okay? So as time progresses in this new, you know, evolving understanding of long COVID, this definition may change. But as of current, here's what the definition is. According to the New Oxford American Dic Dictionary, long COVID defined, is defined as a syndrome characterized by the persistence or development of symptoms that are attributed to COVID-19 that exists more than 12 weeks after the initial infection. So it's basically somebody's had an infection, they end up resolving the infection, they clear the infection via testing, and then there are symptoms that persist. Now, it's estimated currently that 30% of all patients infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus will develop long COVID symptoms. I also think it's very important to recognize that these symptoms, they're not necessarily persistent. They can wax and wane. They can come and go. 
And so they, you could have symptoms for a week and then you could have symptoms, you know, not for a week. And, and so that process can come and go. So what are, what are some of these symptoms that many of you may be experiencing and know quite too well, unfortunately? Some of these symptoms are chronic fatigue, brain fog, sleep disruption and sleep difficulties, pain, inflammation of the, the pharynx, pharyngitis or throat inflammation, muscle aches. So we can have joint pains. We can have joint uh, aches. We can have muscle aches, muscle pains, headaches, fever sporadic fevers, gastrointestinal upset, skin rashes, chronic cough, pulmonary issues, hoarseness. And again, these can be continuous or episodic. They don't have to be constant and they can be, they can fluctuate in severity as well. So they can go from mild to severe, severe to moderate, mild, so on and so forth. Now, when this first came out, long COVID was actually referred to as more long haulers, H-A-U-L-E-R-S. But then it's more generally become to the general public long COVID. Of course, science jumps in and comes up with, you know, all kinds of crazy uh, terms for it. PACS or what's called post-acute COVID-19 syndrome or chronic COVID syndrome. Okay, that's that's more, you know, that's more acceptable. But then there's the PASC or post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection. You know, the, these are medical dogma, medical jargon that uh, it's like getting, you know, a letter from an attorney takes an attorney to decipher what they just wrote. That's exactly what these names imply well. But I think long COVID really speaks to people. They understand it. So I think that's the appropriate term we should use here. Now, looking actually at away from a dictionary, but actually what the science is defining long COVID as, of course, they called it post-acute SARS-CoV-2 infection subphenotypes. Um, they, they, um, they described it as a newly incident diagnosis of symptoms existing 30 to 180 days after documented SARS-CoV-2 infection and resolution. So they're saying, look, this could be up to 180 days later that these symptoms start to occur. And these can be divided into really four broad categories, heart and kidney. By the way, that group is the only group whereby men predominate in those symptoms over women. The other three groups, women dominate in those symptoms. The second group is respiratory, sleep, and anxiety. The third is musculoskeletal and nervous system. And the fourth is digestive and respiratory. These are just four broad categories to group these symptoms. The last three, women, again, predominate in symptoms over that of men. What's interesting about these four categories is that each of these categories point towards pre-existing conditions. They, they point towards pre-existing diagnoses, pre-existing medications. So it's not like these were in many ways brought forth anew. These were really just a flaring of an underlying problem. So there existed a comorbidity. And as this virus came along, triggering inflammation and other things we'll get into, it really exacerbates an already, you know, process that's just waiting to fire. So it's evidence that the symptoms of long COVID follow a pre-existing trail of chronic inflammation, immune disruption, and organ system disruption. It appears that long COVID is merely just exacerbating that which already pre-existed. So what are the causes of long COVID? Well, I think there's two obvious causes, and, and we'll dive into more specifics, but 
inflammation, and viral reactivation. Research uh, points to the possibility that long COVID is the result of reactivation of latent viruses. What's a latent virus? A latent virus is a virus that previously had infected a host and then went into dormancy or latency. So basically, a virus comes on board, it replicates aggressively, it creates symptoms, infection, and then it goes into a non-replicative mode or very slow replicative mode, thus not causing symptoms. Viral reactivation implies exactly what it implies. A virus is reactivated. So inflammation and viral reactivation really could be tied together, but they also are unique and, and separate. Common latent viruses are definitely many, but not limited to this list. Herpes simplex virus type 1 and type 2, this is what you may know of as the ulcers, the herpetic ulcers, oral and uh, genital, but understand there's a lot of cross-contamination uh, now, so it doesn't really exist in that clear, defined pattern. Varicella zoster, hello, chickenpox, Epstein-Barr virus, mono, I have no energy. And then there's cytomegalovirus, human herpes 6 virus, Kaposi's uh, sarcoma, which is common in HIV, a John Cunningham virus, sorry, John Cunningham, uh, BK virus, parvovirus B19, adenovirus, and as I mentioned, adeno, uh, HIV. So you, when you look at the common triggers for the reactivation of these latent viruses, so these are viruses that can cause clear infection, but they can go into a latent or a somewhat dormant phase. So, so again, rapid replication and then really slow or no replication at all. So what can trigger reactivation of these latent viruses? Well, number one, stress. And I think that's always really important because when patients come into my clinic at Brio Medical and I, I, as a new patient, I sit down with them and I said, tell me about your life a couple of years before your diagnosis. It's stress, 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 stress. Life is stress, right? Second is other infections. So other infections can trigger reactivation of other infectious agents. And the third is inflammation that could really be from other infections. So these are some common regular triggers of reactivation of this virus. And, and you've seen this, right? Big stress preempting shingles. Yeah, that happened to me several years ago. A lot of stress, had chicken box as a kid, and out came the shingles on my forehead. So, but, you know, so we, we recognize this impact. So let's, let's dive deeper into the science behind the reactivation of viruses as it relates to long COVID. Uh, a very recent article published in 2021, we want to say current, but where it's appropriate, we want to dive into the history. The, the, t the title of this article was Investigation of Long COVID Prevalence and Its Relationship to the Epstein-Barr Virus Reactivation. Again, 2021, and what they found in this study, very interesting, is that 67% of the individuals with, with COVID symptoms were positive for EBV reactivation based on positive titers, not in the IgG chronic titers, which is more of a chronic um, re uh, historical exposure. These are antibodies that show a past exposure, but they also showed EBV viral capsid antigen of an IgM type, which is a much more recent antibody 
uh, production, which means recent exposure or here reactivation. So here's a quote from the authors of this study. Quote, these findings suggest that many long COVID symptoms may not be a direct result of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but may be the result of COVID-19 inflammation-induced EBV reactivation. Wow. So you know, we could be dealing with a virus that is triggering the reactivation of another virus. And I'll tell you why that's important here momentarily, because this virus is unique. That is the Epstein-Barr virus. So one of the other questions was, what the heck is turbo cancer? And, you know, it, it was interesting because I came across that word. I, I hadn't heard it, but a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Paul Merrick, who I was on his recent webinar show, great guy, brilliant guy, you know, probably more published on the concept of, of sepsis as a critical care doc than, than anybody. When we were talking about a webinar, he said, oh, you mean turbo cancer? I was like, oh, hmm, hadn't heard that. So I started searching it. And lo and behold, I found that this wasn't something that was new. Actually, a Canadian physician had basically prompted this word turbo cancer. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did that because of simply what he was seeing, what he was seeing in his cancer patients. He was simply describing what he saw. So once this went out there on the internet as turbo cancer, this doc got, he just got attacked. But what was the doc doing? He was simply describing what he saw. He was just using an adjective to describe what he was seeing, the characteristic change that he was seeing in cancer post-COVID, whether that be injection or infection generating, generated by spike proteins. So where are we on this battle with cancer? Because I think it ties into this. You know, pre, pre-COVID, so pre-2019, there was a lot of you know, there's a lot of smoke out there about, hey, we're winning the war on cancer. In fact, there was a um, recent UK Daily Mail article. It's probably one of the worst grammatically written articles I've ever seen. So I'm not sure who they have writing that. It could be AI. If it is, it's terrible. But whoever wrote it was awful. They used terrible English. Grammatically was incorrect. They weren't space, properly spacing things. But anyways, so what they said in that article was they were saying that the first year of COVID there was actually a reduction of cancer deaths by 1.5%. But when you actually look at the data, again, the science versus the actual science, there was actually an article published in 2022 that was looking at the CDC published data. And the title of the article was COVID-19 and Other Underlying Causes of Cancer Deaths, United States, January 2018 to July 2022. And what they found is that from the years 2018 to 2021, the number of cancer deaths overall increased by 4.7%. But to be more precise, the number of deaths with cancer as the primary underlying cause actually increased by 1% over the same time period. That's the underlying cause of death. That is the primary cause of death. So we have a UK Daily uh, Mail news article written terribly, uh, one source, and it says that we're winning the war on cancer and the, the deaths from cancer are declining. But yeah, actually looking at the data, the CDC data, the government data, it's saying, no, no, it's, it's, it's going up. 
And that was just simply looking at 2018 to 2021. What we're going to see, I fear, is going to be much worse. And that's why I have proposed the idea is that could SARS-CoV-2 be the cause of the coming next pandemic of cancer? Because the evidence, the data, really points to it may. And that turbo cancer is not just an adjective term that likes to be censored on the internet, but it actually may be true. It may be factually correct. So it's really interesting, this word turbo cancer, because it seems to apply to some and not others. And I wonder who, who has the authority and the, to, to control who can use what adjectives. So for example, when you look at turbocharge or turbo cancer, if it applies to anything other than SARS-CoV-2, it's perfectly acceptable. So here's just a few poll quotes from a few articles published pre-COVID, of course, if the context is, quote, turbocharging of chemotherapy, oh, that's acceptable. No problem. It supports the narrative. Second, quote, turbocharging the T-cells to fight cancer, end quote. That's acceptable. Or race to supercharge cancer-fighting T-cells, end quote. By all means, turbocharge away. But, but, if the context is turbo cancer post-COVID, Exposure, whether that spike protein is from injection or infection, to describe actually what you're seeing, then sorry, no turbocharge is allowed. You know me again, I love words because they give us context. If we lose the context of words, we lose what words actually mean. And then these meaning of words can be rewritten and history can be rewritten as a result. The Latin word for turbo actually means spinning top. Its origins early, early 20th century, around 1900. And its origin is the turbine or implies power, vector, and force. So it's really talking about here, this physician was saying, I am seeing a change in force, a change in vector, a change in characteristic of cancer. He was simply just describing what he was seeing, but yet, it was unacceptable because it, it was counter to the ideological narrative that was being propagated. You know, cancer's always been a beast. That, that's not new. When you look at cancer, it's kind of like how we designate dates. There's BC and there's AD. When I believe you look at history in the future, looking back, we're going to see that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to be very similar to the BC and AD. There's going to be pre-COVID and post-COVID, especially as it relates to cancer. So they don't like the, the, the word turbo. Okay, fine. But thank goodness for synonyms. For all of those of you who don't like English, I am so sorry for this nice little exercise that we're about to have. But the synonyms will allow us to, I think, better describe what we're seeing. So how about a few synonyms, which means it's, it's a similar meaning, but a different word to turbo. Well, how about blistering, hypersonic, supersonic, meteoric, whirlwind, or my personal favorite, zippy. Zippy cancer, that doesn't quite have the flair, but so turbo cancer is not allowed, but zippy cancer provides a blistering description of the hypersonic growth seen by doctors in the meteoric rise of cancer in this new supersonic post-COVID era it's all a whirlwind. Or maybe I'm limited in using synonyms as well. 
Remember, George Orwell said, quote, reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. So what is the connection between long COVID and cancer? In many ways, it's the same connection that exists between spike proteins and cancer. Again, whether injection or infection. Infectious sources, whether viral, bacterial, fungal, or parasitic, serve as the perfect delivering mechanism, or what's called a vector, to affect oncogenic or cancer-causing signaling pathways. And we'll dive into what that actually means. There are currently at least eight known human, what are called oncogenic viruses. These are viruses that are known to cause cancer. And they can do that through a variety of different mechanisms. Number one, they can be a direct cause and effect. Number two, they can be just kind of a pile-on effect of viruses just accumulating through life, so to speak. Um, you know, just the, the one straw, the final straw that broke the camel's back. So let me list these out. And some of them you've already heard in the brief listing of the latent viruses. These eight known human oncogenic viruses and understand this is agreed upon by scientists. Epstein-Barr virus, hmm, we just talked about that as it relates to SARS-CoV-2 reactivating it. Cytomegalovirus, hepatitis B virus, human T lymphotrophic virus, human papilloma virus, hepatitis C virus, again, the Kaposi sarcoma associated herpes virus, and Merkel cell poliomyovirus. So these are the recognized eight oncogenic viruses. And I'm going to let a little cat out of the bag here, so to speak. I wonder where that phrase came from. But um, SARS-CoV-2 is going to become known as number nine. It is an oncovirus. And I'm going to show you how conventional literature defines what an oncovirus is and how the SARS-CoV-2 virus checks each box. So when we look at the SARS-CoV-2 virus and its contribution to the process of cancer, whether that be carcinogenesis or the generation of cancer, so the initiation, but this also applies to the progression of active cancer, whether that is a person with cancer in active treatment or somebody that's in remission, and it also applies to recurrence, thus of latent cancer. So here's just a few of the points we're going to go through. One, reactivation of oncogenic viruses. Two, reactivation effects of other pathogens. Increased lifetime viral load. Activation of shared molecular mechanisms between the SARS-CoV-2 virus and cancer. Ah. Manipulation of oncogenic signaling pathways. Oncogenic mean cancer-causing. Inflammation. Immunomodulation. This just simply means the modulation of the, of the immune system. Persistent spike protein reservoirs. Persistent SARS-CoV-2 virus reservoirs. And then the last is going to be, I believe SARS-CoV-2 itself is an oncogenic virus. So let's dive into the first point, the reactivation of oncogenic viruses. There's a lot of different numbers and statistics out there, but when you look at viruses in the literature, it's estimated between somewhere 10, 15, and 20% of all cancers are caused by viruses. That is a, that's an incredible number when you think about it. And estimates are that up to 25% of all cancers are caused by infectious diseases as a whole. I'll drink a little bit of water from my Brio Medical Yeti. Um, 
Shameless plug, I know. Um, so when we look at these cancer types, you have to look at the World Health Organization data to get a true perspective because you think 15, 20 percent. It's like, OK, but what, what does that mean in real numbers? Well, according to data from the World Health Organization in 2020, there were 19.2 million new cancer cases. And this was actually an increase from uh, 18.1 in 2018. So if we take 20% of 19.2 million in the 2020 numbers, that's 3.84 million cancer cases caused by viruses. Okay, that's on the high, high end. So let's take the lower. If we just take 10%, that equates to 1.92 million cancer cases, essentially 2 million. Real numbers always provide, I think, true perspective. And it's the reality of lives impacted Unfortunately, when we approach things just through a statistical perspective, these lives impacted get lost in the data and the statistics. So let's get back to these, these viruses that are latent, but then also oncogenic, because many of these viruses are, are bimodal. And the presence of an active infection being able to then go latent implies they can exist in two modes. So when we look at these, some of these that are latent and oncogenic are obviously our concern here. Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, the Kaposi sarcoma virus, and HIV. These are all oncogenic viruses that exist in this bimodal phase. And so it's not enough that these viruses on initial infection can actually trigger the cancer or the oncogenic process. These viruses can themselves precipitate the same carcinogenic process after a dormant nap, if you will. So what we're talking about here is that study that I mentioned where SARS-CoV-2 contributing to long COVID through the reactivation of an oncovirus, that's the Epstein-Barr virus, and that oncovirus Epstein-Barr is in turn coming out of a dormant nap to reactivate, promote infection, and manifest some of its oncogenic potential. SARS-CoV-2 virus has been shown to reactivate these dormant viruses in general, and the one I just mentioned is the example. Again, 67% of patients that meeting the definition of long COVID had reactivation based on serotitis of Epstein-Barr. It's one thing to be spontaneously exposed to an oncogenic virus. Epstein-Barr virus in this case, it's quite another to be exposed to a virus of highly questionable origins and purpose that then reactivates other oncogenic viruses. I think you know where I'm going. What if the causative agent of the oncogenic EBV virus reactivation, what if that virus, here I'm talking about SARS-CoV-2, what if it could also exist in a bimodal active infection and dormant phase? The reactivation upon reactivation would create a never-ending cycle of oncogenic viral activation and oncogenic signaling. That's why it's so important to ask the question and see what the data tells us about whether SARS-CoV-2 is an oncogenic virus. Point two here is the increased lifetime viral load. I often tell my patients the best answer to cancer is never get it. That's the obvious. But beyond that, the best answer to cancer is the immune system. 
The immune system is the defense of our body. It's designed to protect us against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. And here, cancer is falling into the domestic category, but viruses are the foreign, but they impact the domestic. Just as our lives are shaped by our experiences, our immune system is shaped by its experiences and exposures. Rather, our immune system is shaped by the lifetime accumulation of pathogenic exposures. That's why I said that when you look at um, you know, viruses in terms of contributing to cancer, it could be just the accumulation, the piling on effect. The argument here is that accumulating infection insults, so hits to the immune system, they trigger acute inflammation, and this progresses to chronic inflammation that then suppresses the immune system, that then allows cancer to escape. So here we're talking specifically about how this repetitive insult can actually lead to the contribution to the process of cancer. So again, acute inflammation, chronic inflammation, immunosuppression, immune escape, cancer escaping the immune system, the cancer, the immune system can't properly survey for the cancer. So what's called impaired cancer surveillance. And ultimately this leads to metastatic potential, cancer spreading. Again, why is that important? It's estimated that 90% of morbidity and mortality associated with cancer is when it spreads. That's metastasis. Now there's literature out there to link chronic viral infections, repetitive viral infections to cancer. So, and this is shown when looking at the childhood infectious diseases. So an increase in commonplace childhood infectious diseases increases lifetime cancer risk. This is what one study published in 2001 entitled, Does Childhood Health Affect Chronic Morbidity in Later Life? The risk of acute lymphoid leukemia, or ALL, increases and correlates with a number of early childhood infections. The cumulative infectious exposure across a lifespan is likely where though the more specific, significant procarcinogenic immunologic impact can be found. So I think here it's not necessarily that one virus or the other comes on board. It's that with time, it's the accumulation, the straining and stressing on the immune system that given time, and I think that's where you get this cumulative effect impact on the immune system that leads to the cancer effect. And over the lifespan, what you get is chronic inflammation, immune suppression, and immune inactivation. Beyond the contributions of long COVID, there are direct effects found in the spike protein, whether in via injection or infection. And I've reviewed these in a previous uh, podcast, so I encourage you to check those out, where I talked about injection versus infection of spike protein exposure as it relates to how, can, how that's going to contribute to the process of metastasis. Interestingly enough, the hyper... Um, activation of platelets because of those spike proteins, because of receptors on their surface, what are called angiotensin II converting enzyme uh, type two receptors and integrins, that the spike protein binds to those receptors and it hyperactivates those platelets. Just a quick review, those hyperactivated platelets, they, they form a buffer around cancer cells as they circulate in what's called a cancer cell platelet aggregate. This allows it to basically steer its way through the systemic circulation and it protects this, these cancer cells against the sheer force of the blood, but also against the immune system trying to penetrate it. 
But what's interesting about spike proteins is they damage vascular endothelium. So if we damage vascular endothelium and you have hyperactivated platelets, in addition to the metastatic potential, you have blood clot potential. And I found an interesting data point on that. In 2017, Pfizer purchased the rights for, in partnership of a anticoagulant or blood thinning drug called Eliquis. So isn't that interesting? Hmm. Coincidence, maybe? I don't know. I don't think so. But um, so SARS-CoV-2 is a spike protein disease, and it's involving the angiotensin II converting two receptors, the integrins, cell reservoirs, platelets, endothelial damage, again, leading to metastasis. I think it's important to recognize that spike proteins, they're a toxin, okay? So when you get a spike protein load, whether infection or injection, you are getting a toxin. And the word toxin from Latin, it comes from toxicus, which it translates to mean poison, okay? Poison. I think that'll provide a little bit of context. This particular virus, it appears to be specifically crafted to contribute to, to disease through this poison, through this toxin, through this spike protein. That's why I call this a disease of spike proteins. Those at high risk for cancer, those in remission from cancer, or those with active cancer in treatment, they are square in the crosshairs. They're in the bullseye of this virus because of those spike proteins and the implication. So what about reactivation of pathogens? I talked about 15 to 20%, some say 10%, some say 15% or up to 20 of, of viruses cause cancer. And I, I, know, I don't want to get bogged down just in virus because there's also evidence of contribution of bacteria, of fungi, and of parasites. And if we just get bogged down in the weeds of this, we lose the force for the trees. And it should come as no surprise that the effect of what links these together, whatever the infectious source and in cancer, it is the immune system. Again, what I tell patients, don't get cancer. Obviously, nobody wants it that I'm aware of. But if you get it, the answer is the immune system. There's no better example here than what are called natural killer cells. Natural killer cells do exactly what their name implies. They naturally kill bacteria, viruses, cancer. And what I'll show you in a second is how that is a direct target of long COVID that is from SARS-CoV-2. The SARS-CoV-2 virus has been shown to suppress and inactivate natural killer cells. Suppress and inactivate your army. You're going to have your defenses down. To use a more modern language that's in the literature, the SARS-CoV-2 virus has been shown to cause natural killer cell exhaustion. So look at it this way, your whole army sitting there, that is natural killer cells, and they're all having a coffee break. Or it's Normandy, and the Marines are set to valiantly storm the beach, and they all say, yeah, we're just going to lay out and we're going to sunbathe. So they're not active. They're not doing their job. So we talked about viruses. What about parasites? There's a parasite called Toxoplasmosis gondii. It's an opportunistic parasite. Opportunistic meaning that coexisting infection can exist in an immunologi immunologically balanced host. So this is where there's a delicate balance between a parasite existing and the immune system. It keeps it in check. 
But with immunosuppression, it leads to a imbalance in the immune system, and thus that check and balance is lost, and this opportunistic parasite takes full opportunity to replicate, to grow, and cause harm. If I didn't say parasite, you'd go, well, that sounds like cancer. And you see the connection between that, because if I didn't say parasite or cancer, you might go, well, that sounds like a virus, or it sounds like a bacteria. And the reactivation of this opportunistic infection is by immunosuppression. So where's the evidence, Dr. Goodyear? I am so glad you asked. So here we go. Looking at a 2019 uh, journal article published in uh, what's called the Journal of Parasitic Disease. So I guess there's your treatment for insomnia. Um, I read it so you don't have to. Entitled Toxoplasma gondii in Cancer Patients Receiving Chemotherapy, Seroprevalence and Interferon Gamma Levels. And what this was looking at was the impact of immunosuppression on parasite reactivation from chemotherapy. Now here, full dose. So let me let the authors tell you, not me, let me let the authors of this article tell you what they found. Quote, the relationship between toxoplasmosis, this is the opportunistic pathogen, parasite, and cancer remains dual. Most cancer patients are in a state of impaired cellular and humoral immune systems, either from the primary disease or from chemotherapy and or radiotherapy administration. Chemotherapeutic drugs work by killing both fast-growing cancer cells and healthy white blood cells causing neutropenia. So, patients receiving chemotherapy are more susceptible to toxoplasma infections. Many studies have reported that the rate of reactivation of the latent toxoplasmosis gondii infection was higher in different types of cancer, particularly those of the eye, brain, blood, and breast. So what they're saying is that chemotherapy, and they even mention radiation in reference to other articles, is suppressing the immune system, and that's allowing this opportunistic pathogen here, a parasite, in other areas it could be a virus, to reemerge, come out of its winter slumber and start creating havoc again. The key point here is not chemotherapy. I've talked about that really uh, across the board in my Unholy Trinity um, triad of how conventional therapies are really propagating the risk for metastatic potential. It's the immunosuppression from the chemotherapy, which happens to be the same way in which cancer spreads because of full-dose chemotherapy. But here it's actually activating a pathogen and that pathogen, just like the virus, is going to turn around and contribute to cancer. Because guess what? Toxoplasmosis gondii is a parasite that has been shown to be connected to cancer. Where do you get it? Cats. Cats. They have nine lives, but unfortunately, they don't pass those on to you. Oh, I have one, and I love our cat. I'm not sure what she does, but my wife loves her, and she sleeps with us and purrs, and so that helps us go to sleep. But cats are great, but they can provide this Toxoplasmosis gondii parasite, particularly when dealing with the litter box. And so that's why you screen pregnant women to help protect against that perfect, uh, potential infection. And again, they can contribute to cancer causing. So when it comes to bacteria and SARS-CoV-2, at least according to the published evidence, the, re the relationship appears to be different. So we talked about viruses, we talked about parasites. 
And to talk about SARS-CoV-2 as it relates to bacteria, we have to look at the microbiome. And unless you've been in a closet or, or a nerd like myself who just likes to read studies, there are what are called microbiomes that we're now starting to discover that have a huge impact on the body. The gut microbiome, how these, this diverse population of bacteria impacts the rest of the body. It impacts the immune system. But we also now know there's a tumor microbiome, right? Because a microbiome is a microbiome, wherever it exists. So a tumor microbiome, there are bacteria that we now know that exist within the tumor microenvironment, but also within cancer cells themselves. So when we look at this microbiome, we have to recognize what's the impact of SARS-CoV-2 on the gut microbiome to extrapolate that to the other areas of the microbiome, because it has not been that long that just merely the concept of a tumor microbiome has come to be. So there's a 2022 article, again, very recent. Here we are early. This is February 3rd, I believe, 2023. SARS-CoV-2 associated gut microbiome alterations, a new contributor to colorectal cancer pathogenesis. So here's an article actually describing how SARS-CoV-2 alters the bacteria in the gut and this contributes to colorectal cancer. So here again, what do the authors say? Quote, significant changes in gut microbiota and microbiota have been demonstrated in early studies in patients with COVID-19. The SARS-CoV-2 infection leads to change in the intestinal micro microbiome. It's changing the gut bacteria that are there. Back to the quote, the consequences of this disorder include the abundance of opportunistic pathogen Hmm, we were just talking about that. And the reduction of beneficial compounds, the overall reduction of microbial diversity, and the absence of butyrate-producing bacteria and fusobacteria nucle nucleatium bacterium. I don't know who named that, but goodness gracious. Therefore, SARS-CoV-2-associated gut microbiome alteration could be a new contributor to colorectal cancer pathogenesis. So what they're saying here is that this virus is altering the gut microbiome, the gut bacteria, the healthy gut bacterial population. And that is going to lead, they're finding connection points that that is leading to a con contribution to increased colorectal cancer, the process involved. So if it can do that there, might it do the same to bacteria that are in that tumor microbiome? If it does it in one microbiome, why can't it do it in the other? And again, the tumor microbiome is not confined to the gut. It's in the tumor. If it's colorectal cancer, then it's there. But if we're talking about other cancers, we know that like breast cancer, they have a tumor microbiome that's different. And what's, diff what's unique about these solid cancer types is these microbiomes in the tumor and the tumor microenvironment, they're unique to each cancer type, breast, colon, liver, and so if the virus can affect the microbiome of the gut and contribute to cancer, then it absolutely can affect that in the tumor microbiome. Now, this is important because what they're discovering is that this tumor microbiome, these bacteria in the tumor microenvironment and, and in the cancer, they contribute a significant impact in resistance to treatment. So some of these bacteria will actually take up the chemotherapy and break it down so that the chemotherapy doesn't destroy the cancer. 
Interesting concept. So if you're altering the gut microbiome and altering the tumor microbiome, you may be actually increasing resistance of that cancer to treatment. Speculation? Well, they're talking about it as it relates to the gut. So where is that going to go? Well, I mean, this is very preliminary, but as we're starting to recognize what's happening in the gut microbiome, we can expect, I, I foresee the same thing to occur in the tumor microbiome. So another quote from a 2022 publication that was published in what's called Frontiers in Immunology. The tumor, micro, the tumor microbiome can affect tumor characteristics by increasing gene mutations, modulating the tumor microenvironment, three, regulating or all add altering the function of immune cells, and four, modulating signaling pathways, and five, influencing or contributing to drug resistance. So there's a quote that follows what I said about it, it's going to lead to resistance. Next point, activation of shared molecular mechanisms between SARS-CoV-2 and cancer. So when you look at viruses, bacteria, and parasites, even fungi, and then, and then look at cancer, what you're going to find is you're going to find a, a lot of common characteristics there. Number one, they both grow. They replicate. And two, they evade the immune system. Whether it's viruses, bacteria, fungi, parasites or cancer, they're going to do those two mechanisms. That's why there's a lot of similarity to these processes and they share pathways. So hypoxia is one. Hypoxia is that low oxygen environment. And we know that SARS-CoV-2 is going to help to maintain hypoxia via a stimulation of what's called hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha. This promotes all of that metabolic change that we see so characteristic of cancer. Two, hyperinflammation. This is increasing excessive cytokine release that you probably heard about early in the pandemic, what's called cytokine storm. That's generated from the virus, but it's actually triggering the immune system, particularly things like interleukin-6, to just overwhelm the lungs and damage the lungs that would then lead to the, the mortality of these individuals. So hypoxia, hyperinflammation, oxidative stress, this is rust, this creates damage, this creates dysfunction. So SARS-CoV-2 and virus share hypoxia, hyperinflammation, oxidative stress pathways. Fourth, immune system suppression. SARS-CoV-2 downregulates tumor suppressor genes. These are things like P53, which are present in over 60% of cancer. SARS-CoV-2, the way in part it evades the immune system, okay, is to downregulate P53, which is the exact same way that cancer mutates and spreads because it evades tumor suppressor signaling. It also creates T cells that don't work right or just lazy. That's that T cell exhaustion. And it also does the same thing to natural killer cells and it also impairs interferon activity. And then it alters or manipulates signaling pathways. So here's where I'm going to get my geek on. These altered signaling pathways are manipulated by these oncovirus are very clearly defined and very clearly defined in both cancer and SARS-CoV-2. One is a P13KAKT mTOR pathway. That's a pro-growth pathway. Anyone that lifts muscles and you build back bigger, back, uh, stronger muscles, that's exactly what you're working in. It's that pathway right there. So you can see how cancer can take that pathway and use it for its benefit and your detriment. 
MAP kinase signaling pathway growth, NOT signaling pathway growth, WNT, beta-catenine signaling pathway growth, nuclear factor kappa B signaling pathway, that's systemic inflammation. An altered DNA damage response. If you get DNA damage because of the virus and you can't repair it, then that's going to promote mutations. Well, virus cancer, you can see how that can benefit both. I've already mentioned the P53 tumor suppressor gene. And here's a quote from an article. Part of the survival strategy of SARS-CoV-2 is based on the downregulation of the basal levels of P53, which in turn leads to the disruption of the tissue homeostasis as mentioned. Quote, also, nearly all of the oncogenic viruses encode oncoproteins that dysregulate, that is, downregulate the P53 pathway. Inflammation. Now, this can be both acute and chronic, and I, and I don't want you to think that inflammation is a problem uh, because inflammation is a part of what the body does. You get a paper cut, you recognize that. Virchow described this many years ago. You know, it's painful, it's swollen, it's hot. You know, it's all of these are cardinal symptoms of inflammation. But I want to focus on three particular here. What's called nuclear factor kappa B, interleukin-6, and then toll-like 4 receptors. Now, when you look at these in both acute and chronic inflammation, because they're all there, what separates them is the stage of infection and the level of inflammation that's present. That's what's unique about them. So first is nuclear factor kappa B. Now, why is this important? Because well, first, this was first recognized in 2002 to increase cancer development, progression, and metastatic potential. This is an inflammatory transcription factor. Inflammation is the bed in which cancer lies. So this particular transcription factor, when activated, has been shown to contribute, cause now, carcinogenesis, malignant transformation, that cancer metabolism, what's called oncogenic metabolism, it alters the tumor microenvironment. It prevents programmed cell death, what's called apoptosis. It promotes angiogenesis. It promotes proliferation, invasion, immune evasion, and physical escape. It promotes epithelial to mesenchymal transition. That's immobile to mobile. That's how it spreads. It promotes metastasis, and then it promotes treatment resistance, whether that be chemo, radiation, or even props up cancer stem cells. That's nuclear factor kappa B. And SARS-CoV-2 triggers it. It activates it. Second, interleukin-6. It's an immune pro-inflammatory cytokine signal. Now, interleukins are kind of like, they're an immune signal, but they're, they're a language or a means of communication that are triggered by cellular stress, whether that be injury, infection, inflammation, or oncogenic transformation. Interleukin-6 is produced early in, in inflammation Beyond the obvious inter interleukin-6 production from immune cells, there are non-immune cells that produce interleukin-6. So immune cells would be T-lymphocytes, monocytes, macrophages, natural killer cells, neutrophils, but then non-immune cells would be endothelial cells, fibroblasts, and then liver cells. Now, what's the connection here? Well, interleukin-6 is a part of that cytokine storm that SARS-CoV-2 was triggering in the lung. Honestly, it's the same mechanism by which full-dose chemotherapy causes cancer to spread. So interleukin-6 is an important immune response, but if improperly employed, it can actually lead to catastrophic disease progression, whether that be in viruses or whether that be in cancer. You know, it's interesting when you look at cancer, it, it's almost like an autoimmune disease. 
When we look at autoimmune disease today, we describe it in terms of what the immune system is inappropriately attacking. Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you know, probably the, the number one autoimmune disease. This is where the immune system is attacking an enzyme in the thyroid, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, joints. But here in cancer, what we're seeing is we see the immune system that actually is a, it's attracted to the tumor microenvironment. It's manipulated, so it's adulterated, and it turns on the immune system. It becomes a double agent. My wife loves James Bond 007, so it's kind of like it's a, you know, they've converted the immune system to be a double agent here. So the power of interleukin-6 is the cytokine storm. And the SARS-CoV-2 absolutely increases this. So if cancer is present, interleukin-6 is going to propagate the same process. Toll-like 4 receptors. It's a little bit in the weeds, I know, but it's important to recognize there's literature, there's data to back it up. I'm not just speculating because I'm going to close this with a profound statement. Toll-like 4 receptors, they're a family of at least 13 preserved, so expect many more to come of the way the immune system can recognize abnormal molecular patterns to target for elimination. These would be what are called pathogen-associated molecular patterns, PAMPs, or what is called damage-associated molecular patterns, or DAMPs. So these are just inherited patterns within our immune system that allows us to eliminate damaged molecular patterns or pathogenic. And these are an important part of the immune system. But what we know about this, as it relates to cancer, is these toll-like 4 receptors, their expression is found to increase in many solid cancer types, colon, breast, prostate, lung, melanoma. And beyond the mere expression of these toll-like 4 receptors, their expression by cancer cells has been shown to be associated with increased metastatic spread. And again, 90% of morbidity or mortality associated with cancer when it spreads. The growing body of research also points to high expression of toll like 4 receptor activity in the tumor microenvironment. To be specific, what's happening here is toll like 4 receptor expression is increased. It's upregulated in cancer cells. So a normal process that's preserved is actually being used by the cancer. The cancer is upregulating it and using it within the tumor microenvironment to increase growth and metastatic spread potential. So that's proving the positive. Again, this is all research here that I'm, that I'm really highlighting. And you'll see this in the show notes. But the counter is also true. So when they looked at breast cancer, they found that the downregulation, the, the decrease of the toll-like 4 receptors in the breast cancer reduced the breast cancer growth. So that's proving both the positive and the negative side. That's solid evidence. So bring this back to SARS-CoV-2 to connect it to cancer, okay? So 2019 article entitled Toll-like Receptor 4 Activation Boosts the Immunosuppressive Properties of Tumor Cells Derived Exosomes. This highlights the connection between infection, that is here what they call persistent infection, that could be chronic, latent, or, or slow as it relates to viruses, as it relates to cancer. So they said increased expression and activity of toll-like 4 receptors in chronic infectious and inflammatory conditions is related to cancer progression. Its activation induces an inflammatory signaling process that increases the tumorigenic potential of cancer cells, promoting their immune evasion. 
Activation of toll-like 4 receptors support tumor progression by stimulating the release of more effective immunosuppressive exosomes, which allow tumor cells to escape immune surveillance and probably even play a role in metastatic potential. So it just piles on. And what it shows you, it shows you that cancer is upregulating these preserved mechanisms, toll-like 4, using the immune system against the body for the preservation of the cancer. Here, the way we look at cancer, it's like it's some bad Sigourney Weaver alien implant, but actually what cancer is doing here via viruses or other pathogenic processes, but particularly SARS-CoV-2, whether direct or indirect through EBV activation, is you're actually triggering the alien within us. It's using normal pathways for its benefit and our detriment. Now, why is this important? There was an article that, obviously beyond the cancer connection, there was an article that looked at toll-like 4 receptors in people with metabolic endotoxemia. Metabolic endotoxemia is that inflammatory process by which obesity, insulin resistance, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, autoimmune disease exist that originates out of the gut dysbiosis. So imbalance of gut bacteria, by the way, which we know SARS-CoV-2 disrupts. So this systemic inflammation is produced out of imbalanced gut bacteria, and it's called metabolic endotoxemia. And it actually causes things like diabetes, even neuropsychiatric disorders. But what they found is that this lipopolysaccharide binds to these toll-like 4 receptors, and it creates and triggers nuclear factor kappa B transcription, inflammation systemically. But when they added SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins, whether injection or infection from that, it increased the combination of the two together, increased systemic inflammation through that same nuclear factor kappa B transcription by over 50% than each individually alone. So the point is, when you look at people that are high risk with what they call those comorbidities in COVID-2, during the early parts of the pandemic, they were all metabolic endotoxemia people, obese, diabetes, pre-existing cardiovascular disease, autoimmune disease. And so what they're just what the literature has shown is that that risk profile with the spike protein is going to lead to further increase in systemic inflammation. So I've already touched on the immunomodulation process quite regularly, but so I'll highlight it just here real quickly and move on because I think we're going long, is T-cell exhaustion. That's just T-cells which are critical as immune cells to basically fight against cancer and, and, and enemies abroad, which would be viruses and infectious agents. So it, it makes them just, you know, relaxed. It also does the same thing to natural killer cells. What's interesting though, too, is looking at the SARS-CoV-2, it actually upregulates what are called immune checkpoints. And if you you have cancer, you have a loved one that knows cancer that has cancer as well. You've probably heard the, these through drug names like Optivo, Keytruda. These what 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 this is is cancer uses these immune checkpoints to evade the immune system. Now you go, why would the immune system do that? Well, to keep the immune system from attacking the body, makes sense. But cancer is going to take advantage of that. And here, what we see with SARS-CoV-2, it actually increases these immune checkpoints and thus allows cells to increase the expression of these immune checkpoints and evade the immune system. Well, if cancer is present, you get spike proteins, whether via injection or infection, and I've seen this many times in patients with infection, and all of a sudden the cancer starts to grow rapidly, aggressively, and spread even faster 
then here's a mechanism. You downregulate, you upregulate these immune checkpoints and it allows the cancer to evade the immune system. Persistent spike protein reservoirs, this is a, a little bit more controversial, so I won't spend as much time here. But you know, when we look at the vac- the um, injection source of spike proteins, they use what are called lipid nanoparticles. And they, they were mirroring these vo- via what the body makes with what are called exosomes or extracellular vesicles. And so these are just little, these are you know, vesicles that, that hold items. And here they can actually hold spike proteins, particularly in the injection source. So what's the, what's the connection there? Well, that's how they give people spike proteins with injection. So if they can give spike proteins via injection that way via the messenger RNA, so they're not actually giving the spike protein, they're giving the messenger RNA, but that messenger RNA that is within that lipid nanoparticle which again mirrors normal cellular vesicles, that then gets reverse transcribed into the genetic code, the DNA, that then produces spike proteins to trigger the immune system chronically. We now have our reservoir, but it's not a vesicle, it's not an exosome, it's not a lipid nanoparticle, it's just the entire genetic genome as whole. Not speculation, that's just connecting the dots. Now, there is also persistent SARS-CoV-2 post-acute infection. Now, this, as far-fetched as this may sound, nature and the literature are, repl- are just full of examples of this viral persistence. Quote, persistent infections are characterized as those in which the virus is not cleared but remains in specific cells of infected individuals. Persistent infections may involve stages of both silent and producing infection without rapidly rapidly killing or even producing excessive damage of host cells. There are three types of overlapping persistent virus-host interaction that is defined as latent, chronic, or slow. Now, this is important because we talked about this relates to toxoplasmosis gondii, where the immune system is keeping that pathogen in, in check. That same concept exists in cancer, and it's called immunoediting. This is where a process, it's defined as three parts, elimination, equilibrium, and escape. And what it is, is in the early phases, equal, uh, elimination, the immune system is eradicating the, the, the pathogen here, cancer being involved, if we're talking about it from an immunoediting cancer perspective. Then there's the contrast to that, which is the escape, where the immune system is not doing its job and the cancer is able to escape. And the equilibrium is where cancer is still replicating, but the immune system is keeping it in check. So there's a delicate balance. And this is the concept of immunoediting, elimination, equilibrium, escape, a delicate balance that exists between cancer and the immune system. Yet the same, I would propose the same balance, the same level of immunoediting exists in infectious disease as well. But don't be lulled to sleep with this equilibrium phase as it relates to cancer or viruses. But particularly in cancer, what has been shown is at the same time that the immune system is keeping this cancer growth in check, it's actually at the same time sculpting, laying the groundwork for pro-tumor immunogenic environment progression. So that immunoediting equilibrium phase is what we would call today as maybe no evidence of disease or remission. There's actually research 
that points, it was an article published in 2007 entitled Adaptive Immunity Maintains Occult Cancer in the Equilibrium State. So here's what they said. They were able to document circulating disseminated cancer cells that survive and are still detectable in cancer patients who have been free of visible disease, that's no evidence of disease, for more than 20 years. So that's pure evidence of this immunoediting phase. And it also applies to these viruses, which, and many of them, are oncogenic. Which brings me to the last question. Is SARS-CoV-2 itself an oncogenic virus? The New Oxford American Dictionary defines oncogenic as a causing the development of tumor or tumors. An oncogenic virus is also called a oncovirus. It's a virus that causes the development of tumor or tumors. So let's look at a 2018 article to define oncogenic viruses. In this 2018 article, Molecular Mechanisms of Viral Oncogenesis in Humans, National Review of Microbiology. So here's how they defined it. They share many features that can lead to cancer in humans. They are one, transmitted between humans. Two, they establish chronic infections. Three, they co-op cellular processes for replication and growth. Four, they undermine immune recognition. Five, they derail conserved signaling pathways, so like four receptors, to control cell cycle progression and evade programmed cell death apoptosis and they support propagation, growth, and spread. Well, if you haven't been listening to anything I've said over the last roughly hour or so, let's go through them each one and, and see if that is the case. Does it, is it transmitted, the SARS-CoV-2, is it transmitted between humans? Check. Does it establish chronic infections that could last for years? Well, that is a still a little bit open to debate, but we do know that long COVID could be evidence of chronic persistent viral reservoirs or spike protein reservoirs. Could be reactivation as well. So that's a check, but not as confident. Three, co-op cellular processes for replication. Absolute check. Undermine immune recognition. That's a double, quadruple check. Derail conserved signaling pathways that control cell cycle progression and apoptosis. Absolute check. Support the growth and spread. Absolute check. So when we look at this according to conventional literature definition of what an oncovirus is in a 2018 published article, it is not only a check after check after check, it is checkmate. This is what the data is pointing to as it relates to long COVID, other viruses, other pathogens, the immune dysfunction, and cancer. And the concern here, does this then lead to cancer being the next global pandemic? Well, if you just look at the data, it clearly points to the likelihood that it does. So that wraps up this episode on the Practicing with Dr. Goodyear podcast. I encourage you to go over to the website, drgoodyear.com. There you're going to find all kinds of information, including links for the podcast. There you can go through to many of the links wherever you download your podcast. I encourage you to do so, subscribe, but also I encourage you to rank uh, and, and support our podcast through reviews. What we want to do is spread information. We want, to, we want to fuel your curiosity. We want to follow the data in this process. 
So following us at Practicing with Dr. Goodyear podcast, as well as the, the drgoodyear.com website, there you'll find all the information you want to as it relates to integrative medicine and cancer. We'll talk to you soon.